The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, this is the first time I've given a talk and written out so much, which I'm probably not going to read. Um, I kind of like to get there and feel what the room is like, and, uh, and then we kind of see what happens from there. The only things that are usually set are the poems that I write. And because uh, I write from a jazz sensibility, they're never said, sung, or chanted the same way every time. And uh, so uh, we'll start with uh, a poem that kind of gets at some of the things I actually wanted to talk about tonight. And uh, feel free to read between the lines and uh, notice what images or memories that come up for you. This is called Home at the End of Another World. I hid in my mother's womb, curled and turning in suspended animation, waiting for the right time. But when the bombs fell at Hiroshima, Nagasaki, why did I ever come out into this world at this time? The flames, the screams, the stench, heartbeats in silences, devastation. But there in the dining room, in a brownstone on the south side of Chicago, My grandmother's jasmine spirit billowed in blue in the sheer white curtains, hot whispers of spring, in the greening, in the blooming, my mother and father entangled, sweat, breath, flesh, twist, grips, caress, little death, and the world spinning, turned and turning, My spirit said, yes, to a new year, to a new day, now is the time. And nine months later, I awakened in dream time, between darkness and light, between yesterday and tomorrow, old year and new. Now here we are at Fukushima. The blessed island, rocked by tsunami and earthquakes, pouring poisons, Fukushima, Hiroshima, Fukushima, Hiroshima, and the fire burned this time. And so I am born again with my own song, known and knowing from lifetimes of experience that the darkest hour is still just before the dawn. And I returned to Abyssinia. I wrote that in October of 2013 before I was, as I was preparing to go to Ethiopia for the first time, leaving North America for the first time, going to Africa for the first time. 
And all the things that were happening in the world were like inside of me. Um, I had to deal with a lot of fear and anxiety to make this trip. First of all, because I don't like to fly. I don't like turning over (laughs) control to somebody else. And there's so many somebody else's that it takes to get you from here to Ethiopia. So, essentially, fear Is it going to cooperate? Yeah, I guess that's okay. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm the only one, but as I began to learn meditation and begin to be able to really study how my mind worked, a lot of things became clear to me. One of the things that became clear was that Throughout the day, much less throughout my life, I made a lot of decisions based upon what I was afraid of. And when you make a lot of decisions based upon what you're afraid of, that means you're trying to avoid something. And I began to understand how when you're making a decision based upon fear, you create other problems in that process. You create a problem around the fact that you're holding yourself back. And if you're holding yourself back, you're not... you're not living... you're not living your gifts. You're not bringing forth your talent or the purpose for why you first took a breath. I don't think this is going to work for me, but... um... (laughs) So, in grade school, uh, my ears drew a lot of attention. (laughs) Because back then, they seemed to like really stick out, and I would get teased. And my, I think my mother noticed that something was happening to my personality because I was feeling really uh, insecure, inadequate, you know, not okay because I didn't have the right ears. So at some point she took me to uh, a specialist who said that, well, we could operate on his ears and make them rest on the, against his head. And I might have been about five years old at the time, and I stopped and I thought about it, and I heard this voice say, I'm going to keep these. They're mine. This is me. Why that came into my head, I don't know, but at this stage of my life, you know, it's, 
I'm really clear that that was a good decision. <laughs> Nobody teases me about my ears anymore. <clears throat> and uh, I hear pretty well. I come from a, a, a long line of people who come from different places. What I'm aware of right now is that my heritage is African, Native American, and European. And again, growing up on the south side of Chicago in the 50s, uh, from the environment that you lived in, what you would hear on the radio, see in movies, hear on TV, it was easy to get the idea that there was something profoundly wrong with being black. Okay, I came out with this complexion, but in my family, there's like all these shades of black, you know, from, you know, high yellow to like my grandfather, this deep, rich mahogany. And so since I was experiencing love and compassion and caring from such a mix of blackness, when I, and because of things that my parents said, you know, like there used to be this club there, a social club, that if you wanted to belong to it, one, you had to have money, enough money to pay for the membership, but you also had to have a complexion that was uh, maybe no darker than a paper bag. And there was something about that that really offended the sensibilities of my parents, and they communicated those kinds of values to my brother and I. And when I went to school, I noticed that this was getting me something that kids smarter than me with darker skin could not get. And I think because I'm so empathetic, I could feel the pain of my friends. Um, and I began to get the idea that there was, that I really wasn't very smart. and that there are all these other people who were smarter than. Um, the people that I came from, uh, some of them were real uh, rebels and activists. For instance, uh, in the African part of my family, uh, there was maybe half a dozen people that I know of anyway who were active on the Underground Railroad. Um, and we got out of a place called Paris, Kentucky in the middle of the night, a great, great, great grandmother who was a free woman of color but had seven children by one of the men who was enslaved. And they left the plantation in the middle of the night 
Um, and the way the story goes, once they got far, far enough away, um, they sang a song together. And my grandfather went back, and my grandmother and the children went to Indiana. They got to Terre Haute, and somebody tried to re-enslave them. They escaped again and got crossed over into Ontario, Canada, to a really uh, well-known settlement that was started by a man named Josiah Henson. Josiah Henson wrote his own autobiography. He escaped from Maryland in the late 1830s and made it to this town in Ontario that he wanted to call Dawn, but eventually the German immigrants won out and it ended up being called Dresden instead. But the, a lot of the houses are still there and uh, Josiah Henson wrote his own autobiography Harriet Beecher Stowe read it and based Uncle Tom's Cabin on a lot of his life. And I'm so aware that this term, this name Uncle Tom, has such a negative connotation when actually the man was, who the, was the real Uncle Tom, was this visionary, courageous man that helped a lot of people escape. Um... My impression of Canada today isn't, isn't the one that my ancestors had because there's so much like the U.S. in, in some of the most uh, dysfunctional ways. And the oppression of Native Americans there is something that continues today. It's like a long, drawn-out genocide that has not stopped. <sighs> so, um, growing up in Chicago in the 50s, um, I think one of the benefits from being, growing up on the far south side, which had so much nature, there was something about being close to grass, tall grass, nature, uh, a small forest with a pond that had turtles and frogs, and being raised by uh, parents who had a real connection to nature because um, they were a part of the YMCA, so they were every summer going to summer camp in Michigan. And so there was a value placed upon leaving the city and going into nature. The other thing that was uh, kind of interesting was that my mother was a part of uh, a small group of African-American Girl Scouts who integrated uh, the Chicago Girl Scout camp in the 1930s. Flash forward 30 years later, my brother was a part of a small group of African-American boys who integrated the Chicago Boy Scout camp for the first time. So there's 
And let's see. And my mother's mother was also uh, a concert-style pianist. But because she uh, married when she did, she quickly began to have children. And the whole, I mean, even at that time, there were very few, if any, African-American concert pianists that could appear anywhere in the U.S. other than a church or something very local. But she had these uh, five children, eventually, and uh, she was an activist. And when they moved to uh, Chicago at the beginning of the Great Depression, because my grandfather, who was a chef, uh, lost his half of a restaurant that he owned, co-owned, in Marquette, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula. And there was a lot of people of color losing property and land late 1900s, early, late 1800s, early 1900s. It was happening to African Americans, it was happening to Native Americans. They were being uh, swindled out of their land, having it taken, in the case of Native Native Americans, having it taken uh, for taxes and they weren't even supposed to be paying taxes. Um, So, um, I grew up in this environment where there was a strong sense of justice and activism and appreciation of art, especially music. And and I'm really clear about the fact that in an African-American culture, the culture is not possible without music. The lives of the people is not possible without music. It is... Uh, the spirit and blood that allowed us to survive um, impossible circumstances. So I also got this idea that art was not uh, a commodity that was basically about how can I make money with it. It's how. It's how we had community. It's how we communicated important messages about, uh, for instance, how to escape for slavery or um, the importance of our connection to one another. Um, In African-American culture, and I think it still exists today, there is this value placed upon making family not just in terms of getting married and making family, but making family with people who are friends. And because you, we don't have formal ceremonies for it, like uh, our Native American brothers and sisters, they have specific ceremonies where you make family with somebody, you adopt them. Ours is through sharing music, sharing food, and just noticing a profound heart connection, and you start to call the woman down the street, grandma or auntie, 
or this friend over here, your brother your, or your sister, and its extended family was what held us together through the hell that we were going through and are still going through. Um, I was raised uh, in a Christian environment. Um, my mother's family who came, you know, out of Canada into Michigan, they just walked across the border or rode across in a wagon. Um, so I have some empathy with my friends and relatives who come out of Latin America and cross the border and come into the U.S. Uh, basically, because of how world economy works, people can't afford to stay in their home. Because there's always some minority of people who are willing to take dollars as long as the outside influence, like a corporation, can have access to the resources. So, some of us begin to make a connection between the rape of the earth and the attack upon our culture. Um, I read a book by a German Africanist named Jan Janheitz. And it's when I was like really curious about African culture and I wasn't getting it in school. Not in elementary school, not in high school, not in college. I had to get it on my own. So I began to like go to bookstores and uh, when I was in college in Moorhead, whenever I'd go home to Chicago, uh, in the late 60s, um, partially because of the civil rights movement, um, it was like another renaissance was unfolding there in many other places around the U.S. You know, like the Harlem Renaissance blossomed in, in New York City. And it spread around the country. And American culture in general was really impacted by this music and dancing and literature. It affected everybody. And in, and in fact, the Africanization of U.S. culture really happened in a lot of ways because of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, there was a show on Broadway called Shuffle Along. And you would have... European-American singers like Al Jolson, sort of imitating black speech, singing black songs. Uh, a woman like Sophie Tucker. Uh, has anybody heard of Sophie Tucker? <laughs> A big body woman of Jewish heritage that just really dipped into the blues and was very popular for several 
decades, I would say. Um, black speech beginning to move throughout the culture. Um, If you grow up in that kind of environment, you begin to notice the contradictions. And uh, I was a kid that would ask whatever question came to my mind, no matter where I was. Uh, I think sometimes my mother felt like she had to hustle me off the bus because I burst out with something like, you know, why does that man look so funny or... Um, in Sunday school, asking a question in front of the whole Sunday school, like, who made God? And I'm waiting for an answer. And the Sunday school superintendent attempts to answer my question, and my four-year-old brain says, mm, that doesn't work. You haven't answered my question yet. Um... But I think it was a sign that I would have a lifelong interest in things that had to do with religion and spirituality. Um, one more story that I think kind of explains why I ended up here like I did. Um, again, when I was around four years old, there was uh, Thanksgiving at my father's sister's house, my Aunt Emma, and my granduncle Daniel came up from Arkansas for Thanksgiving, and he was what they called a jackleg preacher, and a jackleg preacher was a guy who would move from one area to another preaching in this community or that community. And he had a reputation for having the gift of prophecy. And so my cousins and I, my brother, my cousins and I were playing on the living room floor. The adults were sitting around the table talking. My Aunt Emma picked, pulled me from the living room floor, took me into the hallway where Uncle Daniel was, and she asked him, what do you see for this boy? And he said, he's going to be a preacher or a doctor. A lot of time passes. I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I have a daughter. I'm working as education director at the African American Cultural Arts Center, which was here on the south side. And by this time, I had finally accepted the fact that I was a poet, which was really hard for me to accept and also voice out into the world. So by this time, uh, I was performing my poetry with musicians. And there's so much behind how that came about. But after we had performed for like a Kwanzaa celebration, I noticed that people were coming up to me afterwards and saying how they liked it, how they felt when they came in, and how they felt now. And 
this memory from being a four-year-old at Thanksgiving, listening to his uncle, granduncle Daniel say, this is what you're going to be, the memory comes back. I mean, I remember, you know, significant parts of the conversation. And I call my mother and I ask her, this is what happened, is did Uncle Daniel really say this? And she said, yeah, he said that, but you know he's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, um, being a minister was something, you know, like when I was in confirmation class, I knew that the minister who was my mentor and encouraged me in my activism, um, I was one of the boys who were, you know, trying to lead him in that direction. And I kept thinking, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. Um, I was an altar boy. I didn't like that. I gave it up because I said... uh, it's getting to be done by rote. You know, I don't feel anything. There's like no magic. There's, there's not some kind of spiritual energy that's making me feel like I need to keep doing this. And, and I really didn't like doing funerals. <laughs> um, because I, I think it happens to a lot of kids when you go to your For a lot of us, when you go to your first one, you get really traumatized because of how in this culture we look at death and how we try and make people look like they're just sleeping. But, you know, to a kid like me, I was thinking, this looks really weird and really scary, and I don't like this. I don't want to be in this kind of environment. And... And I think in the culture as a whole, there is this fear of death. And about two weeks ago, I'm listening to this Sufi in Egypt who knows the deeper interpretation of the pyramids and where that indigenous wisdom came from. And he said, we don't have a word for death. Um, The word that we have, or the term we use is westing. Referring to where the sun goes. Because they believe that all life was in cycles. And that the sun set, and then it rose again. And the more I've studied indigenous wisdom, regardless of what continent it comes from, there's some things, some reoccurring patterns or ideas, the circular nature of life. Okay, so like when I read Jan Janheinz, his book about neo-African literature, he tried to talk about indigenous African values. And what he said was, In a typical village, the people know how to live in harmony with that environment. And the cultural value that they keep 
articulating in so many ways, whether it's in a song, whether it's in the symbols on uh, a house, or in the stories they tell, it's how do we keep this in balance? And what is your role as a part of this community or this clan in helping us maintain the balance? The balance in harmony with the soil, the water, the vegetation, the animals. Like, everybody doesn't hunt all of the same animals. Some members of the community have uh, a rule about we don't hunt or eat that kind of animal. And the rationale behind all of that is keeping the animal life in balance. Everybody isn't uh, essentially contributing to the extermination of part of the animal environment. So, reading that gave, began to give me a lens through which to look at life in general. And it was so ironic to me that I would pick up a book written by a German who thought it was important enough to study in an authentic way, not as though he's going to look at the savages and see why they do their superstitious stuff. Um, it eventually caused me to want to study African oral literature and to be curious about indigenous cultures wherever they were. I think the reason that I ended up in Minnesota was... I think my ancestors were encouraging me to reconnect with the Native American ancestral wisdom. And I was, in some significant ways, welcomed into that community and began to participate in ceremonies that, again, I, be, I was seeing the, the connection that, again, indigenous wisdom, although it might come in different packages, different terms, different language, the essential message is all of life is interconnected. From the leaves of grass to the distant constellation, there's a, con a connection amongst all of that. I remember as a teenager seeing uh, a statue of the Buddha. And it's the classic Buddha out of Japan, that broad-based one. Do you know which one I mean? And I felt really drawn to that. And When I was in art class, I began to mold a Buddha out of clay, um, which I eventually gave as, as a gift to one of my aunts, and when she passed away, it returned to me. But I... Indigenous wisdom. Let me... 
refer to something that I think is pretty important. Remember, I referred to my uncle having the gift of prophecy. Well, prophecy is a pretty common practice amongst all people, especially when they're rooted in their traditional indigenous ways. We are living in prophetic times. Here are some of the, briefly, some of the prophetic beliefs that are held by our relatives all around the world. There's a Hopi prophecy that predicts a 25-year period of purification followed by the end of the fourth world and the beginning of the fifth. The Mayan prophecy call it the end days or the end of time as we know it. The Maoris, they say that as the veils dissolve, there will be a merging of the physical and spiritual worlds. Zulu prophecy says that the whole world will be turned upside down. The Hindus say Kala Yaga, Kala Yuga, or end of man, the coming of Kalki, which I believe is Kali, and a critical mass of enlightened ones will emerge. Kali, when things get really out of hand, destroys stuff, and there's rebirth. The Aztecs call this the time of the sixth sun, a time of transformation, creation of a new race of humanity. The Dogon of Mali, they say that a spaceship of visitors, the Nomo, will return from the blue star. And there's a bunch of cultures that have stories about the blue star in the Sirius constellation. It's not just one isolated group of people. The Pueblo acknowledge that there'll be an emergence of the fifth world. The Cherokees say their ancient calendar ends exactly in 2012. The Tibetan prophecy, Kalachakra teachings, are prophecies left by the Buddha predicting the coming of a golden age. In ancient Egypt, according to the Great Pyramid, uh, present time cycle ends in 2012. And the indigenous people of Iceland predicted a time when human disharmony will lead to disharmony in the natural world ending in rebirth, in the coming of the green, evergreen times. Could that possibly be a coincidence that people in so many different locations are saying this is a special time, it's a time of transformation? We, we were all born at a time when a sense of the sacred has, well, not been destroyed, but it's not valued. It's not at the center of our civilization. And even though all of us come from indigenous cultures, regardless of what continent most of your relatives may have come from, they all had a sense of the sacred, which allowed them to live for long periods of time in the same area without depleting that land, that water. 
that vegetation. In the times when they did do that, it was a time when there was massive change, caused massive death and migration. There's a lot that's going on right now that I think can ca that causes all of us to feel anxiety, fear, to be emotionally shut down, maybe being pulled to medicate in all the different ways. We medicate with sports, we medicate with alcohol, we medicate with sex, we medicate with shopping, we medicate with we medicate. And it's, it's like the sense that we have of ourselves as isolated bags of flesh that we're afraid for that identity, that selfhood to do what we think of as die. Because we've been acculturated to really believe in uh, believe that we're these isolated individuals and that the the polarities that we're trained to see and respect, be it black and white, male and female, um, you know, whatever, all those various polarities, there's this Asian symbol that ought to, like, cause us to see that polarities aren't really what they seem to be. Because if you look at the yin and yang symbol, which is a very powerful image, you'll have Black and white, and a seed of blackness in the whiteness, and a seed of white in the black. When I was deeply involved, when I was, got through with school and left here, I mean, I really ran back to Chicago because I had been in this mainstream white environment for like a good six, seven years, and I was like overwhelmed because, again, I was constantly getting these messages, sometimes from people who smiled at me or wanted to be friends that were continually telling me in a lot of different ways that my people were inferior. And at times, people would even tell me, uh, you're not like them, which would, like, drive me crazy, right? <laughs> um, and if you grow up in an environment where you're considered a so-called minority, you actually... Uh, are having experiences throughout the day, much less throughout your life, 
that are really triggers for rage. And I had been taught to like uh, short circuit that rage so that you would not know what I was thinking or feeling. After six years in Fargo-Moorhead, I ended up with ulcers. And at that time, in order to cure ulcers, they would give you a surgery. So I had this, this scar, like from here to here, where they took out the middle portion of my stomach, sewed it together, and cut the vagus nerve. Now they know that, yeah, it's certainly stress-related, but it has more to do with bacteria and stuff growing in, in your intestines. So, I've been trying off and on to give you an idea of how I have, through my life, what would you call it, I've assimilated a lot of internalized oppression and messages that have nothing to do with who I am. And now, being uh, 69 years old, I'm finally giving myself permission to, like, really smile. I don't have to hide my smile. Uh, I'm giving myself permission to, like, maybe recognize that when my parents gave birth to me, that they were a vehicle through which my ancestors who never laid eyes on me knew that one day I and a lot of others would show up with a job to do at this time. So, Buddhism has offered me a, a vehicle through which all the spiritual traditions that I've studied, I can like take in those lessons, but I don't have to limit myself to have a particular religion to defend. I got nothing to defend. I can see that the way that my mind works is that I'm always trying to connect the dots. Whether I'm meditating or whether I'm working, I'm trying to understand uh, that insight that came from Jan Heinz's book that there's a, there's a need to keep things in balance because everything is interrelated. And if you can get away with it for 400 years, you might be able to get away with it for 400 years, but a time comes when it doesn't work anymore and you can't breathe and the way that you're living is making you sick. And the, the, the slots that they want you to fit into to make this thing work, you realize, I don't have to do that. I don't have to be that. Um, you know, one of the challenges with doing something like this is that, okay, I know how other people do it, 
and I keep thinking, well, I have to do it their way in order to do it the right way. No, I can do it my way and hopefully share some story that you recognize yourself in because whoever we are, if we tell our story from the deepest place of who we are, no matter how complicated our identities are, a person from the other side of the globe will hear and feel something from your story and they realize, oh, I can connect with you. We share this or that. But if you stay in your own place and don't talk to other people in a very open way, uh, it won't work. <laughs> um, I think it's so unfortunate that we have the media that we do and young girls will pick it up and think, oh, I have to be like this if I'm going to be beautifully me. When if, if your eyes are really clear, you can see the beauty of being an elder or a baby or anything in between. Just be open to the idea that beauty manifests in so many different ways. Um, I can't... I keep getting the message over and over again that the biggest challenge is to be yourself and to accept yourself because I've had some difficult lessons around realizing I, I, I wasn't really set up to love myself passionately as who I am. And ultimately what that did was, uh, for instance, in the simplest ways, it's been hard for me to accept compliments. I mean, I just get really nervous and it's hard to hear a compliment because this critic is back here saying, you know, bullshit, that's not real. <laughs> um, so I heard the cliche for many years, you know, like loving yourself allows you to love other people. And, okay, I get it. I really get it. I can really see that. How the lessons unfold for us are sometimes on their own timeline and depending upon how open we are to learning whatever we need to learn. But um, I, I can't keep myself from looking with, through these critical eyes, hopefully also compassionate eyes, but critical about consensus reality which is wrong about so much, from the simplest stuff to the most complex stuff. Um, and even though I'm like learning a lot from Buddhist thought, I keep noticing how patriarchy really does insert itself everywhere. And you got to name it. 
And if you're female, you can't listen to that message that says, I can't do that because I'm in this body. You're robbing yourself and you're robbing us. Does that make sense? So, I had no idea where this was going to go. Um, I want to read one more poem and maybe we can have a conversation. There's a lot I left out. I wasn't really sure what this group might need or who would show up. So, I thank you. I want to read a poem that's not mine, but it's was so timely. I've shared this online, shared it with my oldest daughter. It's by a, a, a poet named Derek Walcott. It's called Love After Love. Oh. A time will come when the elation you will greet with elation. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. So, I haven't said anything about much about going to Ethiopia or Bangladesh where I learned a lot of stuff from the good people in both those places, but maybe uh, there's things on your mind you want to talk about, ask about. Okay, it's, mm -hmm. well, um, Ethiopia, um, I've been a part of the Ethiopian-American community here since the 70s when I was in grad school and had married for the first time a woman from there. And it's a, <laughs> it's a community that traditionally hasn't really been open to outsiders. And for some reason, um, I became a part of that community. Um, so, uh, 
one of my sister-in-laws was a little girl when she came here, and she lived with me and my wife. And uh, when my mother-in-law died, whom I was very close to, um, my my sister-in-law was maybe about 14 at the time. She took over control of her family house. Uh, Her spirit was so strong, and she just sort of knew what needed to be done and told people what to do, and they did it. So, as a thank you to me, uh, because I helped take care of her boys when she came here maybe three or four years ago with her adopted sons, um, she bought me a ticket so I could go home for the first time. And I didn't know most of the people there. And because of how they reacted to me, in part it's just culturally how they are, but there was this other piece of, I felt like I was looking in this mirror and it was forcing me not to deny some things about myself. That I do have a spiritual role to play. And that um, I, I just might be lovable. <laughs> um, and, and you know, when you take on meditation and you begin to see how your mind acts like the, the messages that are invisible to you, that you've just taken on, uh, when you see them for the first time, you might feel embarrassed or ashamed, like, what, I was doing that? I was thinking that? But it's like more material to let go of. Breathe in, let go. Breathe in, let go. So, um, I had experiences in Ethiopia I could not explain, like, uh, I was feeling such an intense I'll just call it a spiritual energy. And as a writer, I kept hearing voices or words that were demanding to be written down, energies that needed to be translated into words and sounds and melody and rhythm. So um, the love that was being projected on me, uh, I just had to relax and just accept it and realize that, you know, a couple of times I was with groups of elders who were like 80 and 90 years old, and we were like socializing, maybe in a coffee ceremony or sharing a meal. And when it came time to go, there were a couple of times when I found myself totally surrounded by these elders who had their hands on me, you know, like laying on hands, and they were praying and I think getting me ready to come back here, long life, good health, come back and see us. And I've never experienced anything like that, never written so much in my life, like day after day after day. Um, And, you know, the other thing about being born here is that what I've witnessed most of my life is that truth tellers and visible 
men of color who tell truth, difficult truth, they're targets. So it was another message that I got was be under the radar, be invisible, short circuit your rage. Now, I do believe you need to do something with rage. I mean, it's energy. It's good energy, but you got to know how to use it, how to transform it into something that sustains you and gives life, sustains life, rather than destroying. And I, and I think because I was in the womb at the end of the Second World War, in my imagination, I passed a lot of spirits that told me, look out. This is what it's like. Be careful about this and that. Don't allow yourself to do certain things or be become certain things. Ethiopia was a real gift. It has a really dysfunctional government. Uh, you know, like a lot of stuff I say here, if I did it there, I would be in jail. Um, but the people were just so good to me. And, um, and they gave me myself, the parts of myself that I could not claim. Yes. Uh, I'm sort of guessing thoughts on maybe um, kind of a community, kind of radical community organization and how you can avoid like the institutionalized dogma, I guess, that exists within that framework and still be effective. And maybe more broadly, it's so like and kind of community organization and radicalism. I'm the product of the 60s and a lot of movements. And Today looks to me, feels like the 60s on steroids. And what's different that I'm seeing here in the Twin Cities anyway is just the incredible mix of people who are collaborating, who are saying this is the common ground or this is our common interest. Uh, we know that racism, classism, ages, like all these isms exist, we have to name that and build an alliance across it because divide and conquer is how we ended up here like this. And you have to assume that since you went through this school system, you've been watching these movies, you're acculturated to like look at so much as like a game to be number one that you've taken in some really dysfunctional, unhelpful stuff and that you need to be ready to have somebody tell you what your blind spots are. And that means being vulnerable might be a road to a greater strength, uh, a greater authenticity. I work with a lot of groups. I See, I've now ended up being like a, a multicultural elder. Um, I get, okay, so the Native American community, African American, um, immigrant African, uh, Latino, especially the part of the community that's like really involved in 
reclaiming uh, Aztec, Mayan wisdom. Um, um, Hmong. Uh, I'm a lot closer to some number of Hmong youth uh, who are artists and activists. Um, so it has put me in a place where I have to think very carefully and very deeply before I put something out there. Um, because there's got to be a way to talk to everybody, but you can't water it down either. Um, so I want to answer your question. I think being humility and being willing to stand for what you believe in, but to also listen, particularly when a conflict comes up, because when a conflict comes up between two people or two groups, what's actually happening is that something is trying to be known, that everybody needs to figure out what's trying to emerge here that we don't know. And there's something for me to learn, something for you to learn, and how do we move from here to create what we need? Um, the numbers of, okay, maybe, you asked about groups. One of the groups I'm involved with is Neighborhoods Organizing for Change and their environmental justice organizing in particular. I'm also a part of something that this community is a member of called Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light. Um, Environmental Justice Advocates of Minnesota, um, Community Power. Community Power in its first phase starting in 2011 was Minneapolis Energy Options, and we were pushing City Hall people to consider that if our energy companies didn't want to create clean, local, renewable, reliable, affordable energy, that we should become a municipal energy uh, city and create our own local renewable energy, creating jobs for all the people here that need jobs. And some city council people told us to go away, raise some more money, and then come back. That really wasn't an option. I mean, we raised some money, but we organized. And we talked to people in every community and got a lot of organizations to endorse us. And when it came up for a vote in City Hall, I mean, like 350 people showed up and enough people voted right to bring us to a place of having the Clean Energy Partnership. That's 14 citizens that I'm one of. No, 15, I'm one of. Uh, three people from City Hall, including the mayor, and four execs from the two energy companies, Excel and Centerpoint. And so our job is to create uh, the city's energy future, but it's actually going to end up being more of a regional strategy because we want to build bridges between urban Minnesota and rural Minnesota. Reservations and others can do wind energy. Um, we found out that one of the wind 
entities in the western part of the state uh, can get a hold of some money that would fund this new paradigm of wind and solar working together. And we really need people to uh, be behind the ideas of having solar gardens in our neighborhoods. We need to have the jobs, and we also need to own and control our own energy as much as possible. Because the profit motive doesn't work. They were willing to ship in energy from far away and pay executives, you know, like oodles of dollars, and that money could be here, supporting the people who live here and consume the energy. We can be producers and consumers. I hope that answered your question. Yes. Well, I've had my own mental health issues, particularly around uh, depression, which I think I've pretty much moved through it. Um, in, in consensus reality, if you have a mental illness, they want us to think that it's you. Something's wrong with you. As opposed to being in an environment that triggers certain responses in you that helps you cope. Maybe not the best coping, but whatever you can figure out, you know, in, in your own time. Um, we have to get more skilled around naming that it's the environment. And as individuals and as a community, self-care that will allow us to reclaim our lives. I think meditation is a really great skill for dealing with depression. And there's a lot written and a lot on, you know, audio um, for people who are like dealing with depression, for instance. Um, you know, the other part is that there's some behaviors that's triggered by the chemicals that we're exposed to in industry, in our food. Um, reclaiming our wellness really does have to be looked at in the context of the world that we've created and things that we've been taught are okay but are deadly or harm harmful. Does that help at all? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can talk more about um, how you've been able to connect to your ancestors given um, you have such a diverse range of Yeah. Uh, 
when I, uh, I think some of the first Hmong people that I began to develop some kind of relationship with were those who were practicing the traditional spirituality. Um, there was a Mr. Yang, this might have gone back to the 80s maybe, who was uh, a shaman. I don't know if he's still in body or embodied or not, but he uh, used to play this instrument. And so I would hire him to come to events to give people an idea of the cultural diversity and beauty and power that we had here uh, in the Twin Cities. Uh, one of the young artist activists that I'm mentored to is a guy named Tu Saikoli. And he and some others began to, like 10 years ago, create this conference where Hmong and Native Americans come together and uh, compare their traditional wisdoms and and encourage uh, those who want to to like actively reclaim those traditions and practices. Um, so there's a conference every, I think it's in September, and it's usually in La Crosse. They're trying to like also have it here, uh, but I think there's ways where we really need to, in ways that work for us, reclaim those ways and beliefs. I think for me, because um, my first reclamation was in terms of reclaiming African identity, I mean, I changed my last name, um, and... I think the real magical moment for me was my first sweat lodge and I I could I didn't have permission anymore to buy into consensus reality because magical things were happening that I couldn't rationally explain. I there was just no way to explain what I was seeing like even in Ethiopia I, I was at a dinner that some church women were having, and it might have been St. Michael's Day or something like that. But there's this weird way where you can be doing something that's Christian, and it's you have what I would associate with a very pagan experience. So I'm sitting in this circle. They're feeding me great food and, and uh, honey wine. And I looked down to the other side of the room, and it's like something flipped in my head, like, like pages flipping. And I see my grandmother and her sister sitting next to each other at the other end of the room, and they're smiling at me. And I'm like looking, and you know, my heart starts going like this, and my breathing changes, and everybody stops, and they look at me like... So I'm thinking... What lie can I tell that they're going to believe? And I couldn't think of anything. And so I just said, well, 
I looked down there and my grandmother and my aunt uh, were sitting there for a while. And they said, oh, okay. Would you like some more to eat? <laughs> oh. um, if you, you have to step outside of the modern Western paradigm and probably be in nature and just be open to what presents itself. And I think eventually um, you'll hear a voice and it can come at you from a lot of different ways. You know, like at times, uh, you know, I have friends who have died and I'll encounter somebody on the street that looks like them. And they'll say something to me that just seems like they know me. And I think, okay, hi, good to see you again. Uh, there's messages coming at us all the time, but you have to be kind of open to the fact that they do want to talk to you. They do um, have some things for you to do. And it's mostly about you know how the, there's this Jewish thing about tekun olam? Have you heard of that? Okay, it means to heal the world. That's everybody's job right now. So if you have that in mind, the opportunities to manifest that keep presenting themselves to you. Um, I don't think there's anything accidental about, I don't know, you showing up here now at this time in history? I don't know. Were you born here or were you born over there? Okay. So, like me, I mean, it's like you got to work through a whole lot of stuff in order to, but I think you might have more help than I had when I was 20-something. Yeah. Um, one, two, three. Concerning Tikkun Olam, there's a story in Judaism that says God created the six days and then took the day off. We're in the middle of that day off now. It's literally a day with a period of time. It wasn't such a day. And part of the deal in creating us was that we have to complete the creation of If you want to lay something heavy on you, you got to finish God's work on this planet. That's why we were pushing. And so part of all of this, much of what you're describing, what other people have gone through, is how do we find ourselves on a path to grow in the proper direction in order to complete that creation. certainly made money at times, but I couldn't, you know, like, take care of a family with 
with what I, and I think because I didn't totally believe in myself, I haven't been good at self-promotion. I mean, there's stuff I've said tonight I would not have said last year. So <laughs> I mostly write poetry and essays. I have written one theater piece and once in a while short stories, but it seems like I, my thing is mostly poetry and essays. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about uh, like Buddhism in the West um, and how it like historically has been like overwhelmingly white and middle class. And I'm wondering if you have a perspective on that and maybe um, some thoughts on how we can be sure that we are uh, a welcoming community rather than just a community mm -hmm. like, and how someone like me who is white and middle class can be an ally to that sort of Mm. Well, um, gee, how to approach that question? Um, my awareness of the emergence of Buddhism in the U.S. mostly focuses on the West Coast, and and I usually think of it in terms, although I might not be right in terms of the Japanese immigrants and the beats, the beat poets. Because I think it was through the beat poets that I became aware of Buddhism. And these were like really, uh, you know, the beats were, I mean, they smoked dope, they uh, had wild parties, but for some reason, Buddhism was like really speaking to them. And I think the ways that I began to be exposed to it, it resonated with something in me. And I think a lot of artists relate to that. Um, you know, the form of Buddhism in the U.S. that has the most diverse uh, membership are the SGI, the Nishrin Shoshu Buddhism, Namyoho Rengeko, that group, Tina Turner and uh, Wayne Shorter and those guys. Um, I'm not sure why they in particular have been so good at reaching a broader base of people. It It might be um, it might be a matter of the chanting. It might be the matter of connecting cha uh, chanting to uh, meeting physic uh, physical material needs. And we don't really talk about, you know, meditation helping you get a new car or a new relationship or, I mean, but the idea is that by it's the Diamond Sutra that they chant. Yeah. Is it? Um, that there's something energetic about doing that. Oh, hi. I didn't see you back there. <laughs> there's something that lifts your energy and makes things possible, makes you more open to receiving maybe what you need. I, I haven't really studied it, but that's sort of my take on it. 
I think in this community in particular, um, we need to keep figuring out how to do it through the relationships that we have. Because you, the growth of a community has to happen through relationships. And if you only have relationships with other people who look like you, it's unlikely that other folks will come. Um, so, I don't know. Yes? Um, I have a couple of different ideas. One off of Nietzsche um, and Daishonin Buddhism, that kind. Um, well, the things that I've noticed are they have small community group meetings. So there's, you know, right in your community, there's very small, you get to know people. And it seems like, I, I studied that a little while, or within it a little while, um, and they really focused on getting out there and changing your community. Um, and not so, not on studying much, which I felt like was a, a lack. Um, but I also think in terms of your question about being more open. I've met a lot of women here who can't come because they have a kid at home. Special needs kids, you know, that people can't take care of or, you know. And I've just noticed that that's one example of people who can't come and aren't spoken for and all that. Um, so just, I think keeping, you know, is open in relationships, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and I also appreciated two things today, I mean a lot, I liked the whole thing, but especially you mentioned doing things out of fear, a lot of your life, and um, that really uh, spoke to me. And then also um, your support around uh, encouraging women to speak up and be involved, because I have noticed definitely uh, it can be a really lonely place to, to speak up. And um, it was just, it felt like a lot of support when you said that. So. Oh, good. We've gone over, I've gone over. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.